But today, I want to continue to preach into some of the things that we've been looking at uh, in our series, Recalculating um, When Plans Change, and looking at some of the rhythms that we actually can try to be uh, practicing and prioritizing right now. And last week, if you remember, we looked specifically at kind of the role of the Bible in our life and getting a deeper understanding of not just stories and teachings from the Bible, but specifically the story of the Bible and how to actually see our lives as being embedded in it and a part of it and allowing God to actually uh, use us that way. Um, And specifically looking at the importance of reading to see Jesus. Um, and reading in community and with community, and then also reading to worship, actually allowing scripture to to bring us to a place of worship. Um, This week, I wanna start with a question, um, and that is, how do you define a Christian? How do you define what a Christian is? And like, just pause for a second and think about it. If somebody asked you, a neighbor, a friend, or a colleague asked you, so what, what, is, what is a Christian? How do you understand what a disciple of Jesus is, what a Christian actually is? What would your definition be? How would you start that? And secondly, does your definition mention the church? <laughs> Did your definition, the first thing that you thought of, mention the church collective, or even have the idea of community in it at all? Because I think that actually the way that we define a Christian, define a follower of Jesus, really has a lot of implications for how we expect community and the church specifically to work. So lots of definitions when somebody asks about Christianity or what a Christian is, you start hearing stuff like, well, it's somebody who's asked Jesus into their heart. Or it's somebody who lives with Jesus as their personal savior. Uh, It's someone who goes to church. She says, well, I'm a Christian, so I I go to church. I attend things that are Christian things, uh, Bible study, church services, events, whatever those are. Or a Christian as someone who's given their life to Jesus or a Christian as somebody who votes conservative or whatever other blank you can fill in of what a Christian actually is. And now this is vital. This is vital. And this is what we're gonna dig into today because our definition of a Christian of a follower of Jesus actually determines our expectations of the church, our expectations of community, our expectations of collective living as disciples. So if we define a Christian a certain way, we also have a definition that's kind of embedded and hidden behind that about what the church is. If we define a Christian as an apprentice of King Jesus, someone who belongs to Jesus and his church and then lives all of life for Jesus and with his church, do you see how quickly that changes our expectations of community? It changes the role of the collective church in our lives and our responsibility to the collective church as believers. So that's what we're gonna talk about. Let me pray for us as we think about some of that. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of community, that you don't just kind of rescue us and change us so that we can sit down and just personally figure things out. But they actually do call us into something bigger than ourselves. that locally, that nationally, that globally, and that historically we're called into and caught up in the church collective. And that that is one of the greatest privileges that we can have. And so even in a strange season like this, we just thank you that we're actually able to still prioritize some form of community and connection And we pray that specifically you would use this season to prepare our hearts and minds for when we do come out the other end of these restrictions to actually prioritize authentic community 
and that it would lead to maturity. It would lead to growth. It would lead to us being encouraged and actually being able to walk alongside one another as you want us to. So we invite you into this time. We ask that this really would be a a time of preparation for our heart and mind as we continue to fight for things, Lord, that we know we need right now as your church and as brothers and sisters. So we ask these things in your name and and for your fame. Amen. So with that in mind, um, I I read something recently that this was pre-COVID, of course, um, that in 2018, the then prime minister of the UK, uh, Theresa May, actually appointed a minister of loneliness. Minister of loneliness, that, that's the job. I don't think that would be the most encouraging job to have, uh, but the, the minister of loneliness was assigned the task of addressing the epidemic of loneliness that defines modern life, especially in the digital age. I also saw something, um, again, pre-COVID uh, from CBC, looking at specifically the, that loneliness is what causes heightened rates of, of course, mental and emotional health issues, depression, anxiety, and even just things like irritability, and also leads to other health issues, like life-shortening health issues, like high blood pressure and, and heart disease. One expert says that loneliness and isolation is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And only 8% of Canadians in 2019 actually spoke and had a meaningful conversation with their actual neighbors. What we're realizing is that the more time that we spend isolated from each other, the more time that we spend trying to replace real connection and community with digital options is the more lonely that we actually become that we actually need face-to-face conversation. I saw some stuff from like neurosurgeons and scientists this week looking at the neuroplasticity of our brain and how important it is for us to develop empathy and actually hear each other and understand one another, especially with differences and the importance of face-to-face interaction for that. There's something about, a, there's joy. There's some, some kind of joy about being heard and being understood and seeing expressions on each other's faces as we actually walk together. There's something so key about that. And if we're honest, loneliness really is just a symptom that points us to something deeper, something that, that we actually crave, that we need. There's something so um, meaningful about relationships and community. And, and I'm not just talking about acquaintances, right? I'm not just talking coworkers. I'm not talking Facebook friends because they're not your friends. Uh, most of them don't like you or know you at all. Sorry, right? But, but, but the idea of true community being known and knowing others truly, like, like high vulnerability, high accountability, this risky kind of like throwing ourselves into community with other people. It's very, very different than some of the digital options that we have. And why is it so important? Well, I think we're hardwired for it. And I actually think like some of the neurobiology and some of that, the, the science that actually backs this up, that we're actually wired for it. That we were designed by a God that is a God of relationship and community simultaneously. And if you remember from our series on the Trinity uh, in the fall last year, we looked at just this amazing idea that God is one in, in, in what he is, that there's one God, but then three persons in who he is that the Trinity is this perfect expression of both unity and diversity at the exact same time. And that God himself is a self-giving community of love. 
and that we were designed to reflect that as image bearers. And then we're invited into experiencing community with the God who made us. That's why we're hardwired for it. That's why it's so meaningful. That's why we feel this vacuum of it right now in this season, especially. And it's not just COVID that's, ex- that's kind of um, shown us this and exposed this. There's a lot working against us right now in this day and age. Things like hyper-individualism and the idea of the autonomous self, that, that really we just, we live and we, we, we breathe and we value and we make decisions and, and we prioritize our lives based on our personal desires and interests. This kind of hyper-individualism that undergirds everything else. There's also consumerism that works against us, where if we just are just consumers in kind of a consumeristic thing, then what happens is we actually end up defining relationships and decisions and goals by what they can offer me as a consumer, right? The customer's always right, right? Um, that, that, that really life is just a bunch of goods to be used and capitalized on, and, and we live to consume kind of newer, better, and more. The result is that also, even within the church, we see this, that the church kind of ends up being like a marketplace of options to sample. And that church exists for you and is about you and your felt needs. And you get to decide which church you'll go to, which is already a weird thing, right? I'm going to go to that church. Whether we, we like the pastor or we like the programs or we like the people or the music or the vibe or the facility or the coffee, and if not, well, we just, we take our ball and we just go home or we just go to another church down the street that offers me a better consumeristic platter. And we also, last, have commitment phobia working against us. Uh, we have a lot of choice anxiety. Anyone? Like FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. We don't want to get tied down to one thing because what if another thing comes along, right? What if we miss out on the better thing? So we, we, we're reluctant to even commit to the thing that's right in front of us for the kind of futuristic hypothetical options that we may miss out on if we commit to this thing. And that kind of floats around also in our consumeristic thing. And then of course, of course, we're working against the physical restrictions right now that we don't have access to each other like we did. We don't have kind of that flesh and blood face to face, like see and touch right now because of the shelter in place. So you might be asking, why even preach on this right now? <laughs> why even preach on something that we're not able to quite lean into fully? Well, here's why. I think we need to be proactively thinking and praying about how we can prioritize community in some form now, but more fully when we come out the other side of this. Because right now, if there's one thing that we need to understand, that yes, we are apart, but we are not alone. And many of you have been making this effort and many of you be, have been encouraged by this, by just the, the, the increasing number of phone calls, the increasing number of Zoom calls, even though it's Zoom, but, but to actually be connecting with people that maybe you wouldn't even be connecting with if we were actually gathering physically because you didn't know them. And now it's like this increasing desire to know and be known. This increasing desire of not to just kind of have general superficial acquaintances with the church, but to actually go deeper with people that you may not have before. So, so we are a part. We are, we are experiencing restrictions on how proximity works right now, but we're not alone. 
And I think we need to begin to prioritize this so that when we come out the other end and we get that access back to each other, that we've experienced something authentic and deep about the community that exists in and through our church. Because if we don't, and if we miss the lesson that I think we can be learning in this season, what will happen is we will learn nothing and we will continue to evaluate the church and our church based on shallow and unbiblical understandings of community because it's the water that we swim in. And I think that we can confuse community with a few things. Generally, I think we can confuse community with, with connectivity. Right? Being in community means being connected. Having a lot of connections with people, a lot of people that know of you. But that can also confuse it because there's not a lot of people who know you. And if, we, if there's anything we know about the digital age, it's that the more time that we spend on social media is the lonelier we're becoming. We are more connected than ever. Not just to information, but to the world, like global community. We are more connected than ever before in human history, period. Connectivity is way up, but community is way down. So connectivity and community are not synonymous. They're not the same. We need community, not just connectivity. We also can confuse community with chemistry, right? You, you know that feeling when you kind of just click with somebody. You're just like, man, they're my people, right? Like, they're my people. I just feel comfortable. We just click on, like, different levels. It's amazing. But here's the thing. You will be in community with people. You already are who are not your friends, who are not your type, who you have very little chemistry with, right? You, you, you also will have chemistry with people who are not in your community. Some of my closest friends are not in my community, right? They're halfway across the world. They're another, another place in Canada. They're down in the States somewhere. And, and because of the history that I've had with them in my friendship, we have high, high, high chemistry, but they're not in my community. They're, they're, they're not seeing Dustin day to day, week to week. They're not. Right? So, so six times a year when I talk to them, I feel connected, very connected, lots of chemistry. We just get on, right? Like we really get on, but they're not in my community. And here's, so here's, here's the misnomer, that you cannot experience community with someone you don't have chemistry with, and it's a lie. And it's really plagued the church, it really has. Jesus did this all the time. Like you know how much chemistry Jesus had with prostitutes and swindlers and criminals and lowlifes? Probably very little. You with me on that? Like, like he probably didn't have very much chemistry with those kinds of people, but he experienced community with them because it's who he is. So we gotta be very careful because you can, and I, I would argue that you are actually commanded to and called to experience and practice community with people that you don't click with, that you don't have chemistry with naturally. And it's something about the gospel and the God of the gospel that actually pulls people together that wouldn't have chemistry and brings them in community because all we have as a common shared thing is the God who saved us. And it's beautiful and it's hard and it's messy and it can be frustrating, but it's also sanctifying and that's the point. And third and finally, I think that we can confuse consumerism with community, right? Community is not about finding your ideal thing. It's not about finding your ideal church or your one size fits all with all the preferences and all the programs and all the ministries and specifically all the content. Because that's the other thing is that especially now with online church things happening, you guys don't have to be here today. Like you can just go and watch someone else on YouTube that you like better, 
right? You can just go and get in your pajamas. You can go and just pick someone's theology that you like better or methodology. It's like, oh, that's, the, that's my real church. You can do that. You're free to do that. But that's not community. Not at all. That's content. And we need content. But, but consumerism does not equal community. The customer isn't always right. You realize that community forces us to be in spaces that don't, doesn't just give us what we, what we want, but it actually gives us what we need. And that's the difference. So just hear me, authentic community, authentic community biblically isn't built on connectivity. It's not built on chemistry. It's not built on consumerism or content. It's, it's built on Christ and commitment. Christ and commitment. Now, the question we should be asking about the community that we belong to is, how much is Jesus at the center of everything that this church does? Like, like the, the why and the what and the how. If Jesus is just kind of like a, a tack on in some sermons, but really when you look at all the discipleship pipelines and leadership development and kids programming and worship and whatever, and Jesus really isn't at the center, then we must be alarmed. We should be. And then secondly, with the commitment piece, it's like, well, am I willing to die to myself and certain preferences that I have and actually give myself to this community of people? Like, like, am I actually willing to give myself to this people? That's the kind of commitment. That's the kind of community that we see in the New Testament. And so there's many New Testament options to look at here, many word pictures that we see pop up in scripture, but it's always pulling these two things together, Christ and commitment. A couple examples, we see obviously family, right? Use a family, brothers and sisters with father as the, 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 the foundation. We see body with, with Jesus as the head. We see flock with Jesus as the shepherd. We see temple with Jesus as the foundation, the cornerstone. We see bride and groom with Jesus as the groom. And we see kingdom with Jesus as king. There's this constant, tight relationship between Christ and his sole leadership and say over the body and the community of believers and then this commitment as this community of believers. Here's an example. First Peter 1, uh, no, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. It won't be up there, just listen. But you are a chosen race. Okay, pause. Every time you hear you in your New Testament and old, it is very rarely, if ever, you as in you, okay? You singular. It is always plural, always Okay, so, so even pay attention as you read throughout the week because you'll do this. It's like, you are chosen people. You're like, mm, I'm chosen, mm, right? It's like, no, no, but, but, it, but it's we who are chosen, right? It's you plural, okay? English doesn't have that. Greek does and so does Hebrew. But you plural are a chosen race, one. A royal priesthood, one. A holy nation, one. A people for his own possession. That's the only singular possessive that happens in these verses because it's about his possession. And why? Well, it's that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Once, before all this, you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
It's amazing to look at that and see that the only singulars there is about the God who has actually rescued and created this new community, this new race, this new priesthood to go and actually serve and, 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 and show the world what this God is like. A new nation, that nationality, that kingdom over all other nationalities, right? People and possession, amazing verses. Here's the point of a verse like this, that life in community is not secondary to the gospel. It is at the heart of the Christian gospel. That life in community is at the heart of the Christian story. It's at the heart of the Christian identity. Why? Well, because the gospel changes who we are as individuals because it changes who our life belongs to. And our life belongs to the God who's rescued us and the other people who have been rescued. All of the other people who walk with a limp, all of the other people who are just trying to figure things out and stumble towards Jesus. That is what we are saved to. So, so the Western idea that we've, we've kind of created for ourselves of Jesus being a personal, private savior and then dying for me so that I can go to heaven is not in the Bible. It's everywhere else. It's in books on bookshelves at Christian bookstores. It's in our worship music. It's in our churches. And unfortunately, it's in our pulpits. But it's not in the Bible. That's the problem. It's just not there. And the New Testament church shows us exactly this. So this will be a little bit of primer kind of work for us for the time that we're gonna be spending in the book of Acts later this year. But if you look through the New Testament, you look at what the church is doing and how the church is reflecting it, it is everywhere and it's beautiful. So let me give you a little context before we read a few verses from Acts 2. But if you remember anything, Jesus tells his disciples, okay, remember I've told you over and over again, yes, I'm gonna die a real death, but yes, I'm gonna raise back to a real life, okay? So when that happens, meet me there, we'll talk, and then I'm gonna breathe my spirit on you and I'm gonna give birth to a new people. That's what he says. And then we have this amazing thing happen where God completely upends and reverses the Tower of Babel when languages were confused and he instead he uses all languages to proclaim one word and that's his gospel word. Right? And then Peter preaches this unreal sermon. Right? Peter goes from like just peer pressured by teenage girls to not love Jesus to then full of boldness and courage to proclaim the gospel in the public square. Preaches this amazing sermon. 3,000 people come in the moment, get saved, right? And say, yep, allegiance to King Jesus now. That's what we're going to do. That's what happens overnight. Okay, so imagine the administrative issues there. Imagine their connect team and their welcome desk. Imagine the coffee and the hospitality center. Like, it would just be amazing to, to see the kind of work that would have to go into this, right? So here's what happens. 3,000 overnight, then watch what they do, okay? So they get they saved. Yep, bow a knee to King Jesus. Gonna give my life to him and then watch what happens. Acts 2, verse 42 through 47, watch. And they, plural, all of them, devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And the result of this, when they did this, awe came upon every soul, everyone else, right? And many wonders and signs, there was power, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They were together together as one. And they had all things in common, communitas, that's, that's the Latin there. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, because of this, attending the temple, 
So gathering together uh, corporately and breaking bread in their homes, being together house to house, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor, that's grace, having grace with all people out in the public square. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is what the church was up to. Now notice two things, okay? And then we'll unpack four things and then I'll say two more things. Do the math, you're welcome right? But notice two things. Pay attention to the what they were doing and the where they were doing it. It's very important. If you notice some of the verbs, some of the action words that were used there, some of the what, they were devoting, committing. There was baptizing. They were receiving and learning. They were multiplying. They were praying. They were teaching. They were eating. They were meeting. They were hosting. They were caring. They were serving. They were sharing. They were giving, and then they were engaging the city. That's all the verbs there. That's busy. That's a lot of work, but none of those things are done alone. And then look at the where they did it. Look at the different spaces. Daily, they were together, day to day. They had large gatherings, so at the synagogue, meeting in the temple, right? But then they had smaller gatherings in their homes and then they were showing grace to all people in the public square. It's amazing to see these different contexts and the result is that day by day, the Lord was adding to the number of those who were being saved. Now, I wouldn't say that this is necessarily prescriptive. It's not a formula. It's like, well, if we just nail this, then we'll, we'll be killing it. But I do think this is descriptive of something that we can be practicing as the church. And if you notice the kind of the few things that were being practiced here, we're gonna highlight them, then we'll apply them and then we'll be done. But notice the first thing, the first kind of action word is that they devoted. They were devoting themselves. Now that word is really important because it means that they were giving constant attention to. All right, so it wasn't just like one thing on their weekly checklist. It wasn't like, you know, the thing that they did a couple days a week or, you know, Wednesday night Bible study and Sunday thing or whatever. It's just like, no, no, like, like they were devoted constantly to the reality that they were a part of something bigger than themselves. They were diligently focused on this. That's what the Greek kind of means. Now, we got to ask, like, what and who were they devoted to? Well, not to themselves. You notice that? This is a question we have to wrestle with individually. What are you most devoted to? Like, like, be honest. Just honestly look at your week. Like, like look at this week. Like, like, this past week. Look, what were you devoted to most? Right? Like, wh- who were you devoted to most? Where did your energy and your, your leisure time and your money, where did it all go? And, and who and what is it devoted to? Because it's so subtle, but like so, so many times our our job and our career and our family, which is a good thing, our family, our friends, our social circles, our dogs, right? Our our self, our leisure, our, our stuff, our homes, all of these things can honestly be what we become devoted to. It's very subtle and it creeps up and it creeps in and it takes us away from something far greater and far bigger that we can be devoted to together in community. So, so everyone, religious or non, doesn't matter where you land on this, as whether you consider yourself spiritual or religious or non or whatever you are, you are co- continually devoted to something. You are continually devoted to someone. And here's the thing about following Jesus, church. Following Jesus changes who and what we're devoted to. That's what the gospel does. It upends and it replaces everything else that would fall short of being worthy of us devoting our life to it. 
That's why sin is not just a moral category of bad things we do. It's actually about overvaluing the wrong things. It's about devoting our lives to things that were not built to hold up the human person. That's what sin does. It just kind of gets lodged in there. That's the lie of it. The lie that it can hold up the, the, the human identity, human purpose. And if you look at the church here, the church is a people with a new shared devotion. You see that? It's a new devotion. It's a new shared devotion. It's a common devotion. And it affects every aspect of their life. And look at the four things that flow out of this. Number one, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. So remember at this point, we have the apostles' teaching, right? Because it's written down for us. That's helpful. But they didn't have it written down yet, right? The New Testament wasn't written down. It was being written and it was being circulated. There was a functional kind of canon happening and shaping the community for sure. But the Old Testament was their, 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 their Bible. And, then, and the apostles came along and actually showed that those were the shadows to the substance of who Christ was and is. And then they were able to parse that out. So we have it now, but remember, apostle means messenger. So when it talks about the apostles teaching, it means that they, these were eyewitnesses and apprentices to Jesus. And then they were the ones shaping the church with who Jesus is and then practicing and modeling the way of life that Jesus modeled. The point here is that the church is a learning community, a learning community, and, and not just learning doctrine and ideas and beliefs. It's not just about believing the right things. It's also about orthopraxis. It's living out the right things. It's about learning a way of life, learning rhythms, learning a way of being, because when we learn how to be, that is who we become. That's the point here. This learning community, which means that if we are actually a learning community as the church, it means that all of us will be at very different stages of that learning. You with me on that? Like, like some people are nailing things that you need to grow in. I know that might be a shocker to you. Other people are dropping the ball all over the place with stuff that is so easy for you, right? And the church is this learning community of sharing and, and commonality and practicing and reflecting back to one another who Jesus is, where we need him most. And if there's one thing that we as an elder team that our heart just kind of bleeds for, for us at Reach Montreal, is that we would have humility as learners. That we would be a, a community of humility and a community of learners. So that will never be any kind of like weird, uh, arrogant thing about like, oh, you're not there on theology yet or you don't have those Bible verses or you don't understand the implications of local mission. Like that we would not have any pretenses whatsoever that everyone, regardless of where they are in their spiritual kind of journey and pilgrimage, that they would have a place to learn, right? That they'd actually be able to learn. That there's no, no insecurity, no, no sense of fear, no, no, no stiff feeling in your chest, right? That you need to have it all figured out, but that you can actually come and, and enter into a humble community of learners, being free to learn and continue learning. And church, that changes everything we do when we practice that. When that posture is there, it changes everything. Everyone can belong, if that's the case, because everyone can learn. If you're not learning or you don't think you still have things to learn, you're probably not alive. That's the beauty of this. We see the church, the early church is a learning community around the apostles' teaching. 
centered on the gospel of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he is continuing to do through his church. That's the first thing. Second thing, fellowship. Fellowship. Now this word's been used and abused all over the place. We've turned it into like this very interesting Christianese thing, right? Fellowship is not potlucks and cookies and fellowshipping, right? Uh, it's, it's, that's not it, right? It's not just spending time together. That's not, that's not what this means. It's actually far deeper than that. It includes spending time together, of course. But the word in the Greek, koinonia, say koinonia. Amazing, sound great. Koinonia means sharing, right? So it means commonality, commonness. Uh, it means partnership. And actually it's a word that's unique to the book of Acts and the New Testament letters. It's not found in the gospels at all. I would argue that that's because it was the spirit of God after Pentecost that makes this kind of koinonia possible. That's why it's not there because it wasn't there. So, so what we have is that there's a oneness, there's a unity, there's a shared kind of imprint of the spirit's work on our life as the church collective. And we get to keep company with each other, right? It's like, who do you keep company with? Uh, my grandfather always used to say, show me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. Right? There's something about that. It's like, well, there's something about who you are by who you keep company with, who you participate in life with, who you partner with as you go through life together. Now, what did they have in common? What did they actually have in common? Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? Like that, that is what they shared. Like nothing else, everything else fell by the wayside next to what they held in common in their allegiance to Jesus Christ right? And a commitment to actually stumble towards him, to walk with a limp together towards Jesus. Uh, we already know they didn't share political persuasion, ethnicity, educational backgrounds, socioeconomic brackets, personal preferences, or opinions on social and cultural issues. We have many examples where they did not share that, right? All over the place of the New Testament, but they shared Jesus. And when they shared Jesus, all of those other things are secondary, because our unity is not rooted in those secondary categories at all. Our unity is rooted in the, the, the fingerprint of God on the church as he breathes life and he breathes the spirit out into the church collective so that they can actually go and be witnesses to the watching world. That's what they shared. And now here's the thing, church, this is so risky. It's so risky to think about fellowship, community like this. And that's why I think we think about it in way more superficial terms. That's why we can just talk about it like chemistry, like, oh yeah, really vibing. My church has a good vibe. You're like, well, I don't know what that is, you know? It's like, oh yeah, you know, I, yeah, we just shared, oh, yeah, we're all about who we vote for. That's what we do as our church. It's like, okay, it's interesting, right? But like, this is risky. Like this kind of fellowship, this kind of community is, is very risky because it's costly, and if we're all honest, I mean, I, I've seen this in my own life. Getting close to others is a really good way to get hurt. With me on that? So getting close to people is just a really quick, fast way to just get hurt, right? The closer you are to someone, the deeper that person can hurt you. The deeper that person can affect you. And I think that honestly, we've been so ill-equipped as Christians in the West to even emotionally and mentally work through past hurt that then we just settle for weird versions of community that really don't involve true fellowship at all. It doesn't. Really does not have any sense of vulnerability. That's what I'm talking about, vulnerability. Like when you think about community, the last thing you think about is I really wanna be vulnerable with these people. That's what I wanna do. That sounds great. The, the, the Latin word for vulnerable means to wound. To, to the, the, the potential of being wounded. That's what vulnerability does. 
Anyone who's married knows that, right? Like, like the people that are closest to you are the ones that actually can hurt you and do the most damage. So there's definitely a risk to this. I don't want to pretend that there's not. There is an exposure to the chance that you're going to be injured and hurt, that there's going to be loss of relationships in Christian community. There will be. Scott Peck, a late sociologist, said that there's no vulnerability without risk, but there's no community without vulnerability. So right. Authentic Christian community happens when we have both vulnerability and accountability. Vulnerability because there's actually a chance that in, in, in just divine abandonment, I'm throwing myself at these people because that's what Christ has done to us. And accountability. Now, this is really important because again, we've done weird things with accountability. Accountability actually ties us to other people, right? It's this healthy social pressure of people are watching you, right? Like there's actually things about your life that people know about. There's expectations. Accountability equals connection to people. So if you don't have any connections, you don't want any connection with people, Christianity is a bad idea for you, right? If you have no, connect, uh, no accountability, it means you have no connection, no meaningful connection to other people who even know you. They might know about you. They might smile at you on Sundays and say, oh, praise the Lord, brother. Okay, but they don't, they don't know you. There's no accountability because there's no connection. There's no meaningful connection to you. They don't know your tears. They don't know your hurts. They don't know your wounds. They don't know your pain. They don't know your joys. They don't know your celebrations. They don't even know how to pray for you because they don't know you. That's why we need accountability. Second Corinthians 6, Paul's talking to the Corinthians who are a bunch of train wrecks, right? Just a bunch of knobs, right? And he says, we have spoken freely to you because our hearts have been wide open. I just love that. It's just like, man, like, like there's, 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 that's crazy. Like there's just something about this crazy abandonment to throw your full heart at people and trust that God is actually going to be the one that keeps us safe, that that heals us when we're wounded, that heals us when we're, we're hurt by other people who reject us and walk away like, like we're nothing. That's gonna happen. But here's the thing. Vulnerability and accountability is not meant for you to share your life with everybody, but it is meant for you to share your life with somebody. Okay, so this doesn't mean that we're gonna get back like physically and say like, hey, everyone stand up in front of 80 people and start sharing how all the vulnerable parts of you. That's not what we're saying. But what this is saying though, is that it's not everybody that you're this vulnerable with. It's not everybody that you're this accountable to, but it is somebody it must be or else we're not experiencing Christian community. So why does scripture call us to this level of riskiness, right? Like, like this, this level of costliness, this level of vulnerability, why? Well, because the opposite is actually far more dangerous. The opposite is far more harmful. C.S. Lewis makes this point beautifully in the way that only Clive Staples can in his book, The Four Loves. Listen to this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung, wrung out, right? And possibly broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, your heart. You must give it to no one, not even an animal. All of our, all of our dog lovers, right? Wrap it, your, wrap your heart carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. 
To love is to be vulnerable. Church, we have a God who with complete reckless abandonment took on humanity, became like us, fully vulnerable to the sin and evil and death of this world and came at us with love because it was worth it to him. And if we're marked by that kind of vulnerability, not without wisdom, not without being careful, of course, but we're marked with that kind of love and we're marked with that kind of vulnerability, which is what Jesus calls us to. It's to actually love one another like, the, like he loves us. This vulnerability and accountability will start to happen and life will just continue to spring up and disciples will be made and disciples will grow and maturity will happen and spiritual gifts will be getting used and we'll see people in our neighborhoods change because that's just an overflow of who we are as we are being changed. That's the beauty of this fellowship. That's the beauty of this community. Third, the breaking bread. All sorts of debates as to what um, Acts is talking about. We don't have time, but uh, basically commentators fall on, on one of two places that this is specifically speaking of communion um, or that this is breaking bread, meaning it can include communion, but ultimately it's about actually sharing a meal. Now I land at the second one because I think there's several places where communion is not spoken about, but breaking bread is. A few verses later, it talks about them breaking bread in homes, not as, a, not as a communion aspect, not in worship with the bread and the wine, but specifically just being together. Now here's the point in this, as they're breaking bread house to house, is that meals were actually the centerpiece of church community. Not a stage in an auditorium, but food at a dinner table. That's the centerpiece of Christian community in the early church. Meals are where the church practiced community and hospitality and togetherness and fellowship, koinonia. It's where they actually practiced commonality, bringing what they have and bringing who they are to the dinner table. Now this is major because even Jesus chose a meal of all symbols in the Old Testament for atonement and sacrifice and sin and redemption. Jesus chose a meal as a symbol of his redemptive work on the cross, the bread and the wine. And the final table that we're looking forward to is at the marriage supper of the lamb. And it's a table, it's a party with really good food and really good wine, right? That's where we're headed. The centerpiece, the center symbol of this is a, is a meal. Why? There's something so important that happens there. If you read through the gospels and you read through the book of Acts, look at where Jesus spends most of his time with his disciples. And I know we're restricted right now, but listen, this is forecasting a little bit for us, okay? He does it over meals. He does it with food and wine. He does it reclining at table, right? In your, in your, in your English translation, translations, they were reclining at table. They were, they were lounging, right? They were laying down on their bellies, facing each other like this, okay? That's what reclining looked like. In, 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 the, in, in the Middle East, in the ancient culture, you would actually lay with your feet outwards because your feet are covered in desert, right? And you would lay facing forward and the table's in the middle, this big square table. And you would like sit like this and you eat grapes and you drink wine, right? And you'd be facing each other. It's beautiful, right? So similar to what we do now at our dinner tables, but Jesus did it all the time, reclining at table, just lounging with people. Like that's the kind of Jesus we have. Like he just lounges, he just chills. I love it. Right? And then walking on trails and fields constantly. There's always outside. Uh, if there was winter, he'd be sledding with us yesterday and his vertebrae would be fine, right? Uh, they were eating fish on the beach. They were sitting under trees. They were going to weddings. They were attending funerals and parties. That's where Jesus spent the majority of his time. 
not in a church building, not kind of corporately doing stuff, but actually interpersonally doing stuff in community to practice this kind of fellowship. So what's the point of saying all this? The point of saying all this is if you look at the spaces where the church is actually experiencing life and being discipled, Sunday corporate gathering church, are, it, it is necessary and vital to the health of the church, but it's not enough. It's not enough. If we only gather corporately once a week, how in the world and where in the world do we actually practice all of the other one another's and rhythms of the Christian life? It's impossible to do it on a Sunday. Watch one, some of the one another's throughout the New Testament. Watch this. Teaching one another, eating with one another, having equal concern for one another. That takes, like equal concern means you actually know each other. It's not just like smiling, like, oh, praise the Lord, brother, right? Equal concern for one another, serving one another, carrying each other's burdens, being patient with one another, being kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving one another. Like, I just love this, right? You know that if you forgive somebody, it means that they've done something that requires forgiveness, right? Like, like you actually need to know people enough for them to actually be able to hurt you. And, and, and then you need to go and apologize for, yeah, when I said that at Citigroup or when I acted like that or when I, when I did this, I'm really sorry. I really didn't mean it to come across that way at all. Will you forgive me? It's like, wow, that's, that's the church. This is awesome, right? Submitting to one another, considering one another, not lying to one another, bearing false witness against one another, not uh, making sure you're encouraging one another daily, building each other up, praying for one another, confessing your sins to one another, living in harmony with one another and offering hospitality to each other. Those are just a few. Like, like there's over a hundred one another's that absolutely cannot happen on a Sunday. They can't. So the danger church, hear me, is that it's actually possible to get better at attending events and worse at following Jesus. It's possible to get better at Sundays and worse every other day because you're not actually engaging a community. And it requires a radical shift for us here. It requires a shift from seeing the church as a people that I belong to and am devoted to instead of an event I go to. It requires a shift for us to actually celebrate ordinary life, like the, the normal life, like the, the normal days with morning breath and, and fatigue and yelling at your kids and, and being grumpy and not reading your Bible because you don't want to, like, like the normal ordinary places of life, seeing that as the church and experiencing that and practicing that and a shift from from actually learning to teach and disciple one another. You saw that, right? Like one another. Instead of relying on like paid professionals and church staff to do the real work of ministry, whatever that means. And last, it also means shifting to seeing our couches and our tables and our porches and, and our parks as the primary place of gospel ministry and service, not secondary. It's a radical shift when we read this well and, we re and, we, and then we go and practice it well. Radical shift. Fourth and finally, they're praying. They're praying a ton. They're just praying everywhere. They're praying lots of different types of prayers. They're lamenting. They're celebrating. They're praying in smaller groups. They're praying by themselves. They're praying in bigger groups. They're praying. They pray all over the place. And if you notice, and we'll see this later this year, every single time that God shows up and does something wild, something crazy in the book of Acts and throughout history, it's because he's responding to his people praying. <laughs> Actually praying. Right? And here's the thing, prayer is hard, right? Like, especially this week, like we, we pray every Thursday, right? We had a good turnout this week. I'd love to see more of you. 
on Thursdays to come out and just pray. You know what's weird? Like unmuting yourself when you're about to pray. And then someone else unmuting themselves at the same time. And then you'd be like, oops, oh, oh, mute, oh, zoom, weird. But guess what we did on Thursday? We got to hear each other. We got to see each other. We got to pray together. We got to bear each other's burdens. We got to actually do that together in prayer. And when you prioritize that, you got to realize that prayer is hard because we're confronted with the fact that we're not self-sufficient, right? That we're not self-made, that we're not all-knowing, that we come, we're just needy, we're dependent, we're desperate. And that's exactly how God wants his church. Exactly how he wants us. And the prerequisite for God answering prayers all over scripture is neediness and desperation. Not even like perfect theology. Not even like doing the right things, but neediness. Desperation, he answers those prayers. He loves to answer those prayers. And the early church was devoted to it. Devoted to that. And, and, and honestly, church, too often, and I think right now in this season, we can sit and we can wonder where God is when our lives are full of everything but prayer. And so if that means for you getting out on Thursday, experiencing the awkward weirdness of Zoom prayer with us, do it. It's weird. It's weird and it's strange and it's awesome. It's all kind of messy and weird, but it's all kind of awesome. And then when, it, when, it, when we get out the other end of this, when we can actually be together again, it means like actually getting together and praying. And we're gonna talk about this a little bit more this year, but there's all sorts of different types of prayer, right? Some of us, again, like we're kind of just stuck in like grocery list prayers. It's like, oh, I just kind of sit, I give God my list of things. It's like, do this, do this, do this, do this. But there's so such richness in a diversity of how to pray. Lately, I, I, I gotta be honest with you, just pastor to people, um, I haven't had a lot of words to pray. I just haven't. So like this Western version of like, no, just speak, you know, prayer is like, you know, you communicating directly with God. Tell them, tell them everything. It's like, well, sometimes I just kind of like get there and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I got nothing. And in those moments, what I have to do is I have to get into the Psalms and I have to pray Psalms. And I have to get into like the Anglican common book of prayer and I have to pray other people's prayers because I don't know what to pray sometimes. There's something so beautiful about those kinds of prayer and, and that diversity of prayer because it's just coming out of desperation and neediness, not out of like impressing other people with how great you pray. You know, how many Father Gods and Lord Jesuses you throw in. There, there's just like this serious dependence upon him, this desperation to come together, that vulnerability. That's why more of us don't pray together. Because like half of us come and we're like, well, I guess I'll show everybody how good my theology is and how I can pray. The other half come and be like, I have no idea how to pray. And that's really vulnerable and I don't want to look like a, a dork. And it's like, well, there's something real about this kind of prayer. There's something about the neediness and desperation that God actually breathes life into that. He loves to meet us there. Like, like, like he, he's overjoyed to meet us there, corporately as the church praying. And the church was devoted to that. Those are the four things that they were devoted to. Here's two final words and we're done and we'll pray. Here's what I'll do too. When we're done today, um, after we close, uh, we'll just, we'll open up a breakout room and I'll just meet you in there. We'll spend 10 minutes just kind of praying. Uh, if you want to pray some more, if you want to chat a little bit and we'll do that and just connect because again, we got we to fight for this, right? Um, community, I got I to gotta just say last, community is vital for your growth and your maturity, okay? You will not grow outside of authentic community. You will not. Spiritually, you'll be stagnant. Uh, personally, you'll just be selfish uh, and the Lord will not use you um, and won't be able to. 
Okay, so community is absolutely essential for your growth and maturity. And here's what's crazy. I went through some of the gospels this week. I couldn't find one time where Jesus actually had a one-on-one conversation with a disciple. Like one-on-one, like come over here. Let me talk to you privately because of your private personal relationship with me. He doesn't do it. It's always in community. Even when he talks to people directly and individually, it's in the context of community. 239 times, disciple is plural. 25 times, it's singular. In the West, we've done the complete reverse. Uh, I read some stuff a while ago in San Francisco. There's this really famous um, forest called the, the Muir Woods. And it's the, the, the redwood trees that are there that they're famous for, right? And these trees are, I mean, like you look at them, they're like, how are they real? Like you don't even know how they, it's like looks right out of J.R.R. Tolkien's brain, right? Like it doesn't even look real, right? And these trees are 250 feet tall. They're 1,500 years old or older. I saw somebody this week say that they were some of the oldest living things that they can find, which is nutty, right? Now, now, why do they last so long? Right away, you'd think like, if you ask John, John would be like, oh, probably because their roots are, are really deep, right? It's like, actually, no, not these ones. They're only four feet deep. And, and the trees are 250 feet tall. So the root system is very, very, very low. But what's crazy about it, listen, they only grow in rows or groves. You will never find them growing alone. The roots of these trees interlock horizontally with the others. And this is actually the secret of their survival and their health throughout the centuries. And there's something beautiful about that. There's something so key about like looking at these amazing things. Look how healthy these things are. On their own, they're dead. They would never survive, right? It's all about them growing together. Their root system interlocking with one another so that they can actually be healthy and grow. Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, says it really, really well. Listen to this. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. Okay, just listen to that. Like you and I would give very different answers to that question of how do you grow as a Christian? So, well, you read your Bible more, you pray better, you journal more, uh, you listen to better sermons on YouTube, right? He just said long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible for genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. Montreal's full of this. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees, going back to our previous example, repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. Church, that's, that, that is convicting, but more than that, it's very encouraging. That for us who are really, we're weathering this storm, where we're fighting to lean in. We're fighting for community. We're not withdrawing, but we're actually leaning into the weirdness and the strangeness and the awkwardness and the questions and all the concerns that we have right now with, with, with what's happening and the restrictions and all that, but we're actually pushing in. The question that I have is how can you continue to lean into community now in this season so that when we come out the other end of whatever this is, that we're actually ready to grow? Because if there's anything that's true, true community, authentic community, like defined by the gospel with, with vulnerability and accountability. True community isn't found. You're not gonna find it. True community is built. So reach Montreal, let's, let's build. Like it's risky, but it's worth the risk. 
Like, like there's vulnerability, but, but that's how we grow. It's challenging, especially now, but it's worth it. It's worth every effort we can make towards it. And if we're just honest, we have all of us have really good reasons to pull away right now. We really do. We have really good reasons to not lean into accountability and vulnerability. We have really good reasons, really good ones. Like I'm, I'm not being facetious or sarcastic. Like we actually have really good ones to pull away right now because it's hard and it's, it's vulnerable and it hurts and it's tiring and it's Zoom and it's all sorts of things that are just like, Bleh, right? But listen, the gospel nudges us into community because that is where the Lord does his work. It's where we get to be reminded of our need for God's grace. It's where we get to be reminded that we're not self-sufficient and self-sufficiency is incompatible with the gospel and community is where we get to live this out. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we're just so thankful that you're not, you're not alone, you're not lonely, you don't need us, but you want us and your gospel creates a brand new thing, a brand new people. When we understand who we are, and who has saved us, we also understand what we're saved to and who we're saved to. We just pray that you would just maintain and preserve us in this season. That you would just help us understand how we can still make every effort to lean in when everything is telling us to lean out. When everything is just tiring and hard and difficult, that Jesus, you would, would show us the value of that risky investment into each other in community. I'm so thankful for our church. I'm so thankful for, for us that we actually get to, that we're privileged to be with one another, that we're privileged to have this, this just network of relationships, this web of vulnerability and accountability. And I pray for everyone who's not yet there or not yet experiencing that, that you would really encourage them, that they would make that phone call, that they would reach out, that they would make that effort so that Jesus, you would continue to, to mature us, to grow us up, so that we would have grace with all people, that mission would happen, that evangelism would happen, that service would happen, that renewal and change of culture would happen because you start here with us. We ask that it would be done by your power, by your spirit, and for the fame of Jesus' name. We give you all the glory and thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.